What if I told you that proving the existence of an all-powerful, all-loving, and personal God wasn't that hard to do? Would you believe me? Just like a work of art or a well-known painter reveals their identity through its genuine style, so too does our world and history reveal the ever-present, guiding hand of our amazing Creator and of His intimate involvement in our lives from the very beginning. By simply following the pieces of evidence that are laid all around us, we can easily determine their source and how they all tie together creates a truly beautiful masterpiece. It is this masterpiece that I want to share with you. And I hope that if you find it beautiful, that you will share it with others too. So now, to begin any journey toward the truth, we first have to ask a question. And that first question is, of course, is there a God? This question seems of utmost importance in debate in the modern era, but interestingly enough, it wasn't that important up until a few centuries ago. A few Greek philosophers, like Diagoras and Epicurus, rebelled against the religious and mystical practices of their time, but it wasn't up until the 16th century or so that the idea of atheism, or the belief that there is no god or creator, really began taking root in Europe. This means that for the majority of mankind's history, including the modern era, we've believed in a divine author to our existence. Now, we'll look at what the nature of that author might be in just a minute, but the reality is that the more you consider history and culture, as well as recent advances in neuroscience, biology, and psychology, it's very clear that mankind is a spiritual being designed for fulfilling spiritual needs and spiritual experiences. Just think about that last part for a second. How many people do you know that make a lot of money at their jobs, but are actually totally miserable inside? How many do you know, or have you seen, that quit everything just to do what lights them on fire, even if it means a huge pay cut or a lifestyle change? We crave purpose and a sense of fulfillment in life. We want to feel that our lives have meaning beyond our material conditions, and we hunger to connect to something greater that gives us a reason to exist. Now, we can argue about what the best way to fulfill these desires is, but the reality is that they exist inside us nonetheless. Man is a spiritual creature with spiritual needs, and this can be clearly seen throughout history. The rejection of the spiritual nature, and therefore the rejection of a God and Creator, is actually a very new phenomenon, and, if you consider the evidence, it's not really supported by science either. So now, back to our very important question. Is there a God? Is there a Creator? Human nature and history certainly seem to suggest there is, 
But these things don't necessarily prove that a supreme being created the world, do they? But if God didn't create the world, the ultimate question is, who did? This is the difficult road that atheism and modern cosmology have been treading for the last few centuries. In their effort to explain causality, without the existence of a supreme creator, they run into serious problems. Now, regardless of what you believe, here's the fundamental problem you have to overcome. In a world ruled by causality, meaning cause and effect, it logically follows that whatever created the world, whether it was a Big Bang or anything else, had to itself be created. But if that's true, what created that? And if that's true, then what created that? Do you see the problem here? The only logical way that everything can exist is that whatever brought it into existence in the first place must be outside the rules of causality itself. That is, it has to be causeless. Now, this is incredibly hard for us to understand because it's outside of our paradigm. It would be like asking a square to understand a cube. There's just no way because the cube exists literally in a different dimension with different rules. In this case, science has come up with a variety of explanations for this causeless, all-powerful source that created the universe. But are these explanations really that satisfying? Or are we just lying to ourselves to avoid the spiritual and moral accountability we would have if there was a God? An interesting and innocuous clue here comes from the spiral. Spirals are everywhere in nature, and while they take dazzling forms and create beautiful structures, the basic quality of a spiral is actually quite simple. So simple, in fact, that it gives us a hint about this relationship between a world of causality and a causeless source. Consider the following in your mind's eye. A spiral is made from two basic shapes, the wave and the circle. A good way to see this for yourself is to get a corkscrew and hold it sideways so that you can see the wave, and then hold it facing you so that you can see the circle. Be careful, of course, but notice that just like a square creates a cube from two dimensions to three dimensions, so too do a circle and a wave, both together as two-dimensional figures, combine to create the three-dimensional spiral. This simple yet fascinating structure has so many secrets to share with us, and in it we can see a very important clue about our creation and our creator. You see, on a two-dimensional surface, say a chalkboard or a piece of paper, the wave represents duality, yin and yang, positive and negative, up and down, and so on. The circle, on the other hand, has no duality. It encompasses everything and just is. In some sense, you could say that the wave represents change, while the circle represents the changeless. When you draw a wave on a piece of paper or a chalkboard, you inevitably have to start somewhere and also finish somewhere else. But a circle starts and finishes within itself, and a completed circle exists without a clear beginning or ending.
Now, do you see where we're going with this? The wave is life, energy, and the world we live in that is ruled by duality. The circle is that unchanging causeless force that, when applied to the wave, creates a spiral which moves through time and space. The circle gives the wave life and allows it to continue onward, develop, and to grow. It is the dance of life, and the only way it's possible is because of the unchanging, causeless source that carries it forward from the background. So now, this may all be very interesting, but as is the case with any good journey, one question leads to the next. If we accept that the only logical explanation to our reality is a causeless, all-powerful source, how do we know that this source is God and not something else? How do we know it's not just some big explosion that randomly happened a really long time ago? These are powerful questions that seem almost impossible to answer. But stay with me, because the answer isn't as hard to find as we may think. The first thing to consider is the notion of randomness. Have you ever thought about what random really means? We use the word random to describe seemingly unexpected, uncontrolled, or unpredictable behavior. We say that we go on random road trips or have chance meetings. And in mathematics or computers, we might discuss RNG or random number generation. But are these things truly random? Or is there something else going on here? The first group of things, unexpected, uncontrolled, or unpredictable events, can give us a few clues. Let's use a classic example and say that you've got a quarter and you want to flip the coin to see how often you get tails and how often you get heads. Probability tells us that as the amount of flips you make approaches infinity, the probability you will have is one in two for each side. In other words, if you flip the coin just five times, your results will probably not reflect this even split, but if you flip it a thousand times or 10,000 times, the scores will probably average out to their expected probability. But why does flipping the coin a few times not necessarily give you the same show of probability as flipping the coin 10,000 times? The reason is that probability is a conjecture based on a simple mathematical model of the coin, not because probability is the sum of all the rules governing how a coin behaves in time and space when you flip it in the air. This is very important, so let's break it down a little bit more. When you calculate the probability of flipping a coin, and say that either side has a 50-50 chance to land, what you're actually doing is looking at how many sides the coin has, and that's your mathematical model. It's the same for a die. If you have a six-sided die, then the probability of rolling a six is one out of six. But now let's say you were involved in a very high stakes gambling game and you only had six chances to roll a perfect six on the die. If you get it, you'll win whatever you want. But if you don't, 
you lose everything immediately and forever. Does this sound like a fun game? If no, why not? Technically, if the probability to roll a perfect 6 is 1 in 6, then you should be fine with 6 rolls, right? If your conscience still shudders at the thought of playing this horrible game, it's because you know that even with 6 rolls, you aren't guaranteed a 6 and losing everything is too great of a risk to take. But why? This is key to understand. Probability doesn't take into consideration how you will hold the die, how it will roll off your hand, what kind of force you throw it with, and in what direction, whether it will hit anything before completing its roll, the mass of the individual die, the starting position in your hand, the humidity in the air, whether there's any airflow from a nearby fan, and so many other things. In fact, if you were to commission your own lab and researchers to measure all of these variables, it would probably be one of the most expensive science experiments in history. There are countless hidden variables that determine what actually happens, and that's why probability only works on greater timelines and repetitions. The rules and systems determining individual outcomes in our world are so complicated and numerous that it's practically impossible for us to predict anything. So, we say that certain things are just random or behave randomly, but are they really random? This is where the problem of information comes in. For something to exist, it must have information. Information is in the form of rules that govern that something or how it behaves. Science of any kind is about exploring and discovering those rules. And while every day we find new systems, new information, new rules, new mechanisms for everything under the sun, we still conveniently label the remainder of what we haven't figured out as random. The truth is that randomness doesn't exist. It's just a measure of things that we don't yet understand. It is an intellectual band-aid that we use to deal with overly complex phenomenon. Everything that exists, exists because it has rules or information that govern how it exists in the world. Having information means there are rules, and rules means that there is no such thing as true randomness. Think about it. Even to program a computer to pick random numbers, you still have to come up with a set of rules or an algorithm, don't you? So now, back to our journey. We know that our world is the result of a causeless, all-powerful source, and it isn't random either because of the existence of information, or rules. But where does this information come from? Couldn't it just spontaneously arise and be inherent to creation? This is another important question, so let's use another example. When a musician reads music and plays their instrument, where is the music? Is it in the sound of the instrument? In what we hear with our ears? The answer is no, because the musician can reproduce the music on any other instrument. And in fact, the sound will always sound slightly different based on the qualities of that instrument. Not to mention that each of us hear and interpret sound differently as well. So, where is the music then? 
Is it on the music sheet? This one's close, but still incorrect. But why is it incorrect? The answer is because the musician might practice that piece so many times that they could play it by heart without the need for the music sheet ever again. So, one more time, I ask you, where is the music? Have you ever thought about that? The answer is that the music is nowhere. It is information. It exists, but nowhere physically. Sure, we can represent that information with notes, words, spaces, and so on. But the actual essence of the music, the information which carries the instructions for the music to exist and be played and enjoyed, is nowhere to be found. Pretty interesting, right? This is the case with everything in reality, with DNA being another primary example. DNA as a physical structure is in and of itself a marvel of engineering, but the information it carries is even more of a marvel, and the more we study this relationship between information, or what is unseen, and reality, as in what is seen as a result of the information being expressed, we come to two very important conclusions. First, information must be created by an intelligence. This is a very important point, so let's use our previous example of the music and the musician. Have you ever heard of a musician leaving a blank piece of paper on their stand, only to come back sometime later and an entire piece spontaneously wrote itself on the sheet? The answer, of course, is no, because these things don't happen. But why don't they happen? Why doesn't information spontaneously emerge from matter? This is such an important point, and the answer is because matter is incapable of generating new information. The only thing that can generate new information is a mind, and a mind means intelligence. Wherever you look in nature, despite all of the wonderful change and variety that we can see, the reality is that there is nothing new under the sun. Things adapt and change, but no new rules are being created. In fact, as you look a little longer, you'll understand that the very opposite of evolution is happening. The world, and mankind with it, are degrading more and more over time. This brings us to our second point, and that is that the best possible state of the world, as an expression of information, was at the very beginning. Just as a body ages and eventually dies because DNA is unable to deal with the onslaught of constant damage from the environment, so too is the overall reality we live in continually decaying from its original, pristine source. In fact, there would be no other way for things to be if you really understand everything we've already discussed. Just as you and I age, grow old, and die, so too does our world as a whole. So now, let's take a look at where we've arrived in our journey. We have a world that was created by something causeless, all-powerful, and super-intelligent. Given everything we've looked at, 
These are the best and most logical qualities for whatever brought this reality into existence. And as much as science tries to avoid it, the best explanation that fits these qualities is God. We also know that, because of how information relates to matter over time, the world we live in now has been de-evolving, not evolving, from its original creation. So keep all of this in mind for later, because we'll come back to it. But we've barely scratched the surface and still have a long way to go. If there is a God, how do we know it's not some apathetic deity or just an impersonal force of creation? How do we know consciousness is not just some fundamental part of the universe and that what we think is God is just a larger, intelligent organism that we happen to be living in, just like cells in our bodies live in us? How do we know that we aren't God as some of the ancient religions or even the New Age suggest, by claiming there is one divine being or universe expressing itself in multiple individual instances. These are all part of our journey to the truth, and they must be considered. Because remember that we are after a personal God, not an impersonal one, and also not so personal that we worship ourselves either. So, how do we answer these questions? The best place to start is nature itself. Take a walk on a nice day, and it's impossible not to feel a sense of awe, peace, and mystery as you gaze upon the natural world. The intelligence, harmony, and sheer abundance of it all dwarfs anything created by man, and it is through these simple hints that many have found and argued the existence of a benevolent creator. If we go back to our spiral example, recall that the wave represents life with its ups and downs. Everything that is alive has a pattern, a frequency, that can be plotted as a wave. There's a lot hidden in the wave, and it's plainly evident anywhere you look in nature. Because it works in tandem with the circle to create the spiral dance of life, the wave reveals some deep truths about the causeless, all-powerful, and intelligent force we call God. First, one simple conclusion from observing the beautiful dance of life around us is that it is perfectly balanced. Everything in nature works like an amazingly fine-tuned clock, never hurrying and never being late, yet accomplishing such an abundance of life everywhere we look and in perfect timing. In all that we see, the best word to describe this perfection is harmony. To be harmonious means to be in balance. And if we accept that an intelligence created the rules regarding this balance, then it logically follows that this intelligence is very just and fair. But how does this work? The answer, again, is simpler than we might imagine. Consider first, what does it take to be a fair judge? What does it take to be a fair teacher? Or what about being a fair parent? The answer to all of these things is that one must understand both sides incredibly well so as not to be biased. Let's use parenting as an example. The ultimate challenge for any parent is the balance of strictness with liberty. If you're too strict, your child will hate you and rebel. Yet, if you're too liberal, there are many important lessons and habits that your child won't take on 
which will lead to future problems in their own adult life and relationships. So then, what's the answer? The answer is that nobody knows how to be a perfect parent, because we never truly know when the best time is to be strict and when the best time is to be liberal. Every parent tries their best and learns along the way, and in the process, they calibrate their fairness by learning to understand both sides. Yet if you look now at nature, everything is already calibrated perfectly. Both forces, the yin and the yang, are tuned with utmost precision. In fact, it couldn't exist in any other way because if there was even the slightest imbalance, the entire system would unravel because everything is interdependent with everything else. And sadly, we can see proof of this all around us today as we interfere with nature's delicate systems with our own primitive, imbalanced way of life. So, why is all of this important? It's important because if the information governing our reality is perfectly balanced, then the intelligence who created that information must have a perfect sense of fairness and understanding for both sides of the equation. If it were any other way, we would plainly observe it as the imperfect information played itself out. Another thing is this. Life is very abundant and outpouring. One way we can look at this is that life is inherently very generous. A tiny apple seed eventually creates an entire tree that can feed a whole family. And the same goes with everything else in nature. From very little, it generates a lot. When we align with this simple principle through our own actions, we are called generous by others and abundance flows naturally into our life. So then, does it not stand that if generosity is programmed into the information of our world, that the intelligence who did the programming must also be very generous? Don't forget that the world changes from moment to moment, and in the process of all these changes, things are continually reborn and made anew. Life's ever-changing quality, its impermanence, the movement of that spiral through time and space, is a continual reminder for us to let go and go with the flow, as it is so often said. But there's something much deeper here if we simply take the time to look, and that is the quality of forgiveness. What does it mean to forgive? Most would say that it means letting go, not hanging on to the past in some way. Well, if we look around us at anything in nature, this is exactly what happens. Everything is forgiven in every moment, and it is because of this forgiveness that things can continue to move forward. Isn't that the case with our own lives too? Holding on to regret or bitterness is one of the heaviest burdens we can carry. Yet, when we forgive, we suddenly feel alive again, don't we? But why? Because forgiveness is intimately and intentionally coded into the fabric of our universe by the Creator. Therefore, the only logical conclusion is that our Creator is also very forgiving. So now, we've spent some time out in nature and gathered more clues, but let's see where that leaves us. The world had to have been made by a causeless, all-powerful, super-intelligent force. That we know. The harmony and beauty of the world, which is an expression of the underlying information, tells us that the world we live in was intentionally made 
by a being that is just, generous, and forgiving. The proof is in the pudding, and nature is one of God's most obvious signs, just as a trademark logo reminds us of our favorite brand and what it stands for. But just as we can infer the truth from what we can see, so too can we infer more of it from what we don't see. This is very important, because despite all of these previous observations, a serious question arises. How do we know that God is good? How do we know that our Creator has our best interest in mind? Could we just be slaves in a material illusion to a malevolent being trying to trick us with all of these different things so that it can harvest our energy? <laughs> it sounds crazy, but to answer these questions, we must look for what we can't see. That is, to understand the motive of God, we must go beyond what is immediately observable. This is the art of decoding by contrast, of deciphering the truth by looking at its contours or what isn't plainly there. In this respect, we know that first and foremost, God is nowhere to be found physically in the world. This truth reveals to us a very important aspect to God's motives, and when we look at what it means to be human, the picture becomes very clear. If there is a creator, then that creator also created us. Every human being has a conscience, and although many in the world today don't seem to be following it, that doesn't mean that the information of a conscience wasn't coded into our being from the very beginning. We also have free will and the ability to choose. What all of this means is that our Creator not only created us with the ability to choose and to discern what is right from wrong, or rather, truth from lies, but also hid Himself so that His existence wouldn't be obvious. Now, why is all of this so important? Well, for starters, can you imagine if the Creator had a giant throne on earth and ruled supreme in all of His glory so that everyone could see? The reality is that free will would go right out the window. His might and power would be totally obvious. And because of this, you and I would have no choice about what to believe, but rather would obey out of fear of punishment. This is the great conundrum that is echoed in many parents' lives with their own children. Every teenager wants their parents to be totally invisible. Yet, as we grow older and mature, we want our parents close by and in our lives. The same can be said with our spiritual journey in maturity. Many who reach the end of their life and realize the temporary, fleeting nature of existence begin to turn back to faith and back to God discovering everything we've discussed here today in their own personal reflections. Yet if every quality we've already mentioned about God, just, generous, forgiving, intelligent, and so on, is to the maximum degree because He's the Almighty Creator, imagine the level of love He must have for His creation to hide Himself and risk losing us to doubt and disbelief. Yet here we are. This is why, ultimately, God must be a God of love. 
because he not only coded us with the ability to discern right from wrong and truth from lies, but also hid himself so that he wouldn't be obvious and, finally, gave us the freedom to reject him if we wanted to in the end. Therefore, the answer to the question of whether God is good or not is yes. God is good and his motivation is founded in unconditional love. But now we reach a major stumbling block for most people, and it's important to address it. If God is just, forgiving, generous, loving, all-powerful, and super-intelligent, why is there so much death, disease, and suffering in the world? Why are there wars? Why is there crime? Why is there poverty? And why do children and animals get abused? Why doesn't God stop it all if he's a loving, all-powerful God? To answer these difficult questions, we must look again back at nature. The first part of the answer lies there, and the second part we'll explore a little later on. So now, one thing we didn't look at in nature previously is how utterly consistent it all is. The sun and the moon have their predictable patterns. The seeds of the various trees all create seeds according to their own kind, and everything runs incredibly smooth given the sheer amount of variables there are in the system. This consistency in the information means that the originator of the information, the superintelligence we call God, must also be and value consistency at a maximal degree. Take a moment right now and imagine anyone in your life that you know to be very disciplined, or that has a sense of integrity and duty. Their word is everything. And what that means is that they do their best to be consistent regardless of the situation. Of course, in the real world, we can never control external variables 100% of the time. So, even the most disciplined will sometimes be unable to keep their agreements for one reason or another. But what about the creator, who is outside of time and space? Outside of cause and effect? If our creator values consistency, and he does from what we can plainly see in nature, then his sense and level of integrity must also be perfect. This makes sense, considering that he was the one who calibrated the information of our conscience. And in this sense, what that means is that God must also be of the highest moral caliber. So now, if God is perfectly consistent and honors his word 100% of the time, what logically follows is that his original words regarding creation must be upheld. What were those original words exactly? Well, when you listen to me speak, like you are right now, I am generating information for your mind through the things that I say and what they mean. In the same way, our Creator generated the information of our world from his infinitely intelligent mind when he created the rules of how things would work. Remember that one of those rules was free will, and what that means is that in order to honor his word and maintain our free will, he would have to allow it to play out to its full conclusion. It is no different than allowing children to do things that carry any sort of risk, like swimming or driving a car, so that they can understand both the benefits and the consequences. In this sense, what we see in the world is not God's fault, but rather mankind's. 
Let's consider this. If God intervened magically and solved every single problem in the world right now, would anyone have the freedom to love him authentically? If someone pays for all of your things and provides you with whatever you want all of the time, would that develop your spiritual character? Or would you become entitled, taking that person and everyone else for granted? The answer is very clear, and this is the paradox of our lives here on earth. In order to develop courage, we must first be crippled by fear. In order to develop generosity and gratitude, we must first lose something very valuable to us. In order to strengthen our faith, we must be poisoned with doubt and betrayal. It is through these challenges that we fulfill our inherently spiritual purpose, and it is through suffering that we learn authentically how to appreciate the truth. But why does it have to be this way? Why would a loving, forgiving, generous, intelligent, consistent, and moral creator make a world where the only way to grow spiritually was at the cost of great suffering? It sounds sadistic, not loving at all, does it? This too is a fundamental question even if we accept that the suffering in the world is not God's fault, but rather the consequence of our free will. Yet, the answer is always as simple if we simply take the time to look. Remember a previous idea we established regarding information. What we see today is a degradation of the original state. If you study genetics, you will learn that over time things do not become better, but rather worse. Do they change and adapt? Of course, because DNA is very intelligently designed. But the reality is that despite this intelligence, the material expression of that intelligence only gets worse and worse over time. A good example of this is the wolf and the poodle. Wolves are very majestic, powerful, and vibrant creatures. And by contrast, the dogs we have bred today, many thousands of years later, are often sickly, weaker, and more prone to cancers, and probably would never survive out in the wild. Remember, you can always get a poodle from a wolf, but you'll never be able to get a wolf from breeding poodles. This is a very important point, and we will come back to it later, but remember that the world we live in today, with all of its wars, injustice, and suffering, is a reflection of the inevitable decay of creation from its original intent. Put simply, we live in a fallen world. So now, here's another question for you. How do we know that it's just one God? Couldn't it be multiple, omnipotent, super-intelligent gods? And how do we know what gender our God is, if any at all? The first question, regarding multiple gods, is a simple one to answer with a little thought. Consider if there were multiple beings, 
each with a will of their own, and each very powerful. Do you really think that they would get anything done? It's not hard to speculate, because the answer is that they wouldn't. The only way creation would ever work is if each of these beings acted in complete unison and agreement on every single aspect, which, in reality, would make them function as one individual anyway. Keep this in mind because we're going to come back to it a little later. The second question is about the gender of God, and this begins the final part of our journey. To answer this question immediately, we can simply say that any being who is outside of time and space, all-powerful and all-knowing, probably doesn't have the limitations of gender or a physical body. But is that all there is to it? And does that make our God a personal one or an impersonal force out somewhere as a concept, just holding creation together like some magical glue? This is where we must now turn to history and examine what it has to show us regarding the personal nature of our Creator. When we look at the world's major religions, there are really just a few. Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, and pagan religions. Considering these various approaches to God will help us find the answers we're looking for. And mind you here that we're not considering their religious practices, but rather merely their history and major theological approaches to creation. If we look at Buddhism, for example, Buddha lived somewhere around the 5th century BC. This places him before Jesus Christ, but not before the Hebrew God described in the Bible. Therefore, historically, we have to look at the earlier source and examine what it says. We know Islam started several hundred years after Jesus, but Hinduism is around 4,000 years old. According to most archaeological records, the biblical Abraham also lived sometime around 4,000 years ago. So this would place the biblical God and the Hindu traditions roughly around the same age in our history. Of course, there were many other polytheistic and pagan practices throughout history, even before these times. But what does history have to say about these various gods, and are they relevant to our journey? One thing that we do know is that the Hebrews were unique in the ancient world because of their strict oral and written tradition. This part's very important, because while every other culture often encouraged embellishment in the transfer of stories and information, the Hebrew culture was the exact opposite, having strict, perfectionist standards in keeping the integrity of the information from one generation to the next. Perhaps this is why the Bible tells us that the ancient Israelites were God's chosen people because they were able to carry the information of how he revealed himself forward through time so that others would learn about him as well. In either case, what we see when we compare the information of the biblical God with other traditions is a very clear picture and answers to several of our previous questions. First, God revealed himself through a masculine presence, and if you're a Christian, this is obvious through the arrival of Jesus Christ. We know God to be consistent, so if Jesus is our creator, as he claimed to be, then this would make sense. But why the masculine if God is beyond gender and physical limitations? 
Why not a female nurturing goddess to reflect motherhood and giving life? There are two reasons for this when we consider what the biblical God reveals to us about who he is and what he wants. The first reason is that the masculine presence represents authority and power. And because we already know God to be the most moral, forgiving, generous, loving, and consistent being in the universe, it stands to reason that reminding us of his authority through a masculine presence was done intentionally for us to listen, obey, and use him as a reference point of how we should live our best lives as spiritually motivated creations. Certainly, we can see the lack of respect for that authority in how it has played out throughout our history and leading into the modern era. Without the absolute guidance of God calibrating our lives, our spiritual compasses have created all manner of lawlessness and destruction in the world. God reminding us He is the Father and the Almighty is not about Him getting attention or trying to frighten us, but rather about reminding us where to look for guidance so that we do not destroy ourselves. But besides this, there is an even more important reason why God chose to reveal Himself through a gender in the first place, and that is because He wants an authentic, intimate relationship with His creation. Remember, God gave us free will and a conscience, and what the Bible tells us is that we chose to use these God-given qualities to rebel and reject God, plummeting our world into a fallen state that was doomed to self-destruct eventually. This is plainly evident when you consider the history of the world and everything we've already looked at. And if you're a Christian, you believe that after several failed attempts on our part to maintain a relationship with God, he decided to come down in the flesh and lead us by example. But when he made his presence obvious, he did not flaunt his power so that we would obey out of fear. Rather, he did the exact opposite, coming as a lowly carpenter who lived a humble life all the while knowing full well we would reject him yet again, only this time by beating him, ridiculing him, and painfully nailing him to a cross in front of his own mother and friends. Imagine to have such love that you're willing to limit and humble yourself just to be among your own creation. Imagine knowing the end from the beginning and keeping your cool and sense of love and forgiveness throughout it all. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is really the ultimate testament to the personal nature of our Creator. But why should you believe it? How do we know the other religions aren't talking about the same thing? That there are multiple ways to God, salvation, or enlightenment? How do we know that we aren't the universe, or God, expressing itself through multiple forms like the Hindu Brahmin suggests, or is how the New Age often teaches today. What do we base our information on about this personal God anyway? Answering these questions will lead us to the truth, but let's consider first what we already know. The most likely explanation for what we see is that there is an intelligent, all-powerful, moral, loving, causeless, forgiving, consistent force as our creator. We know this force is a singular force, and even if it was plural in some way, that it would make no difference because it must be acting as one regardless. We also know that according to the principles of information, our reality was created in a perfect state, 
and has only been on the decline rather than evolving as we are erroneously told. We know that out of all the world's major religions, the Abrahamic tradition of the biblical God and the Hindu traditions are the oldest. But the Hindus have multiple gods, so this is incompatible with what we have come to conclude in our journey. So all that's left is the God that revealed himself to Abraham. Another thing that's incompatible with what we know about God is the idea that he would split himself into multiple individual beings for the sake of experiencing himself as an individual. This New Age belief that we are all the universe, or that we are all divine, is mixed with lots of quantum pseudoscience and flawed ancient theology. So it's not really new at all, is it? But now ask yourself this, would a God that is maximally moral and generous do something this selfish? That is, to split himself up to experience himself further implies boredom or some sort of narcissist desire. This presupposition is so selfish that the entire act of creation is framed from the perspective that the Creator wanted something for Himself, rather than creating something out of pure love and wanting to share that life authentically with its own creation. It is a total inversion of what we have so plainly and simply come to discover through observation. And so, logically, it can't be true. Considering all of these things, the biblical God as revealed to us is the best fit. And if you're Christian, the Trinity nature of God explains how such a multi-personal or multi-dimensional being would be. Remember again from history that the Hebrews had a very strict tradition of passing information down compared to the other cultures around them that valued embellishment. And what that means is that we should find evidence for what was written in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Today, that evidence has been presented over and over again by many passionate researchers and scholars, with major biblical events like the Red Sea crossing and Noah's flood becoming more and more supported as historical facts. Add to that the overwhelming evidence for Jesus' life, burial, and resurrection, and we see a consistent picture begin to finally form. We have a Creator and that Creator is without cause, before all things, all-powerful, infinitely intelligent, generous, loving, consistent, moral, forgiving, and a source of authority, as well as a source of intimate love as our spiritual parent. This God created all things, and from the very beginning they were perfect and good. Because He loved us and wanted us to share in that love according to our own choosing, he allowed us the freedom to reject Him, knowing full well that we would plunge the world into a fallen state without His presence and guidance, destroying ourselves and everything else in the process. But because He is outside of time and space and knows everything, He also knew that this would happen and planned ahead. Because one man's decision threw us into self-destruction, so too does one man's innocent death bring us into salvation. This was our Creator's ingenious solution, and through His example as Jesus Christ, we are taught how to transcend the suffering of the world we created by practicing humility and the love of others. By walking in His footsteps, 
we can live eternally as it was originally intended from the very beginning. And we are assured of this because our timeline has a definite end just as it did a definite beginning. Our God is a gracious, forgiving God, but He is also the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There will be an end, and we are told from a specific book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, that the end isn't too far off. At this time, a great correction will be made, and those who continue in their willful disobedience and wickedness will be cut off for good, but those who authentically want to play by the rules of love, justice, consistency, forgiveness, and morality being rewarded with eternal life. So now, we're at the end of this amazing little journey, and I just have one more question left to ask you. Where will you be when that day comes? What will you be doing? Will you rejoice because the truth has finally become reality? Or will you panic because you'll learn that your reality wasn't the truth? Every day we are given a chance of forgiveness if we only turn our hearts toward the truth. And if you accept everything that we've discussed in this journey, it's also important to remember that Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. And, most importantly, that there were no other paths leading to God besides him. We're programmed to be spiritually driven beings, stewards of creation, and representatives of our moral, just, and loving God to one another. What this means is that we must abandon the easy ways of the world and instead opt for the narrow road, the difficult path of self-control and moral righteousness. We must opt for humility and service, and through these simple guidelines we find freedom in everlasting life. What if it's all true? What if this is life's best kept secret? but also the hardest one to swallow. What if there is an afterlife, paradise, with our own personal, loving, and all-powerful God? Would trading our pride in the temporary physical realm be worth love and joy in an eternal realm? Where will you be, and what will you be doing when that day finally comes? now that you know the truth.